Maybe you remember the first time you ever heard a podcast. Ian Cook definitely remembers the first time he did. And he was hooked. Cook is a social anthropologist. And for him, his first podcast was a version of the BBC radio show In Our Time, which is a show where a panel of academics discuss big ideas. Because it was made for radio, they had to do the whole thing in 45 minutes. So let's say, they did, let's say they're doing the, the, the American War of Independence or whatever. You know, they have to do that within 45 minutes and they're always in a rush, they're always in a rush. And then they used to put this thing at the end of the podcast saying, okay, whew, what did we... And then just for the podcast listeners, not for the radio, they were like, okay, so what did we not talk about that we should have talked about? And then it was so much more relaxed and they would sit around and they would have a little conversation and someone would bring them a cup of tea or a coffee. And uh, and I was like, hmm, that's really interesting. That, that bit sounded so much nicer than the actual radio broadcast bits because everyone was much more relaxed you know much more free and like talking and chatting amongst one another and saying oh you know what jeff when you brought up that point about that i think you really should have probably done that a bit different and it was just like a different tone in those moments cook felt that these educators and researchers were being less stodgy and more vulnerable than he was used to hearing essentially they were acknowledging that they weren't always absolutely sure of what they were saying that they were still working out their ideas. Cook is editor-in-chief of an experimental academic publisher called Allegra Lab, and he ended up becoming a professor and a podcaster himself, and a fan of the growing number of podcasts that are made by other scholars and educators. And his fascination about these educator-made podcasts, it led him to write a book about the genre. Its title is Scholarly Podcasting, Why, What, and How. To research the book, he interviewed 101 podcasters in education, asking them about why they do it and their views on the craft. And he came away with some common themes, no matter what subject matter these podcasters taught or discussed. Cook argues that all these interviews that educators are conducting on their podcasts are adding up to a big change in the creation and spread of ideas. He sees it as an insurgency against the way researchers typically share their work with each other, and with broader audiences. And he found that plenty of educators are using podcasting in their teaching as well, getting students involved with sharing conversations about ideas. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and editor here at EdSurge. We're a nonprofit newsroom exploring innovation at all levels of education. For this week's episode, I got to talk with Ian Cook to hear why and how he thinks these podcasts are changing education. And he brought along some clips from several of the podcasters that he interviewed for his book. So you're going to get to hear from some of those educator podcasters as well. I started by asking Ian Cook to talk more about what makes podcasts different from other forms of media. Every podcaster that I spoke to for the book, and I think... um... In general, this is also how I felt when making podcasts. You're constantly reflecting on the medium of what you're doing, but also you're reflecting on what you're saying and referring back to it. I mean, um, I'm also thinking of the book by Martin Spinelli and Lance Dan about podcasting. I think it's called The Audio Media Revolution. And in that, they say that Serial, you know, the world's first big podcast hit, they said it's not really about um, whether this kid killed his girlfriend or not. They said it's actually about investigative journalism and that's what they're constantly talking about and that's what got people interested so investigative journalists talking about being investigative journalists whilst trying to work out whether or not someone murdered their girlfriend is what drew people in so the meta reflexive nature of it so i think that's what 
sort of interests me the vulnerability the opening up the sort of uh the feeling of intimacy which a lot of podcast scholars talk about but i think when it when it when it comes to scholarly knowledge i think it's the vulnerability which is super interesting for me because you know you spend a lot of time in academia defending your ideas or proposing things and hoping you win a grant or that you get published and so on and that's how the written form works how grant writing works and that's all well and good but i think that's also not how knowledge is produced i know that's not how knowledge is produced and i like to do it discursively i like to make mistakes and think about them in an honest and open way with people and maybe that's what drew me towards scholarly podcasting as a phenomena that i want to research as well and you did talk to, you mentioned for your book, you talked to a lot of podcasters. You talked to, is this right, 101 yes. academic podcasters? <laughs> I don't know how I made it to that many. It wasn't like, a, it wasn't like the aim. Uh, like it was just, I started, I started just reaching out to people. So first of all, I sort of accidentally wrote the book in a way. I wrote a very short like opinion piece for Times Higher Education, which is a UK-based you know, um, academic I guess, magazine. Yeah, I saw that. It was a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. 2018, I think. And I wrote it about something to do with a refugee education program that I used to be the director of. And we did a really interesting project where we had students um, interview the guest lecturers each time and make a podcast out of it. And I thought it was just a really nice way of like turning the tables in terms of hierarchy, a very good pedagogical tool because the students got really invested in the in the lecture because they were already thinking, what's my question going to be and, and this sort of stuff. So I got really into that and then I wrote a short piece and then someone from Rutledge got in touch and said, you know what, someone should write a book on scholarly podcasting. Don't you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, I make podcasts. Like I can do it. And then I started to do it. And because I'm an anthropologist, like I really struggled to like just write without a lot of data. Like I felt like I needed lots and lots of data. So I was like, all right, um, so let's just reach out to a few people. And I maybe spoke to four or five people. And then after that, lockdown started and then i just put out a call i like everybody else like your work sort of changes you know during lockdown and just loads of people got in touch and like loads and loads of people got in touch i just kept growing and growing and then of course because the networks i had it was um mostly in the social sciences and humanities so i was like i better sort of you know balance it a bit get some mathematicians get some hard scientists and so on like that so i ended up being 101 scholars yeah wow yeah, no, and I, I, I want to talk to you about a couple big themes that emerged as as you had these conversations um, with so many scholars and others making these 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 podcasts, and one that really came through. You mentioned it a minute ago is the kinds of conversation that can happen on scholarly podcasts that are almost, in a way, the way you painted it. Sounds like you almost feel like it's like a rebellion against the way professors typically talked to the public and to each other even um it, you know is that is that fair to say yeah i, I called it an insurgency uh but rebellion's also good um it's um yeah because i don't think it's quite been super successful but lots i mean because still you know the the traditional forms of doing scholarship and the way people the way scholarship is done is still there but i think there's a feeling amongst a lot of people, and it's on many different registers, that there's something broken about the way we produce knowledge in academia, right? So writing a paper that takes years to come out sometimes, or at least months to come out, because people struggle to find reviewers because everyone's overworked, because everyone's overworked, because everyone's writing too much, because writing is the way in which our productivity is measured and the way in which we get jobs and keep jobs and get promotions and so on and so <laughs> there's forth. There's teaching too. 
and the teaching too apparently <laughs> go on <laughs> which yeah. you know yeah and, and that's and this is a massive problem like so everyone's producing too much and then and then uh, so this is one thing so a podcast of course it's a new form of production like almost like an extra thing but a lot of people were like you know what this isn't yet measured you know like um some it's becoming measured and some people really want it to be measured some people say listen this is my scholarly work and i want this to be i want this to be understood as such it's a lot of work you know i don't need to tell you it's a lot of work to make a podcast right you've got to read someone's book you've got to like prepare the questions you've got to have the discussion you've got to edit the thing you've got to put it out there and um and then of course this is just a, a conversation style podcast if you do more a documentary style podcast again that that increases it even more and so so a lot of people are like okay i want to do something which is which is outside of my normal outside of my normal working day because it gives me a lot of freedom that I didn't have in other areas and other people were like then interested what it did to the actual knowledge production itself like what it did in terms of opening up different questions different ways of asking questions speaking to different people you know also you know the longer you stay in academia I'm relatively young should we say for an academic i'm 40 years old but still you become more and more specialized because that's just the, the nature of the game but it's really nice making a podcast because you know broadly whatever your podcast is about anything that sparks your interest you're like you know what that's pretty interesting i'm going to speak to that person i'm going to speak to that person so that was also freeing for a lot of people as well it's like you know what we can just you know follow our curiosity we can also go in those ways as well and i think for also a lot of people they also saw it as a change in register or mode or tonality. I mean, there's that, you know, I'm sure we've all been to conferences, those of us who work in academia, where, you know, a so-called conversation is actually just extremely formal and like, uh, whatever, it's not really a conversation, you know, it's sort of like, and it's like, so for a lot of people, I say, like, oh, wow, actually, we can have a discussion about serious, like important topics, you know, in, in great deals of complexity, but not have to do it in a way that, puts people off that alienates people we can actually do it in a conversational form that draws people in and it turns out people actually want to listen to podcasts like people want to listen to really uh complex long-form podcasts which is pretty crazy and it's great yeah i want to i there's a there's a wonderful thing about your book which is that you logged carefully these 101 interviews that you recorded on zoom mostly it sounds like so you have the goods and and you have been generous enough to be willing to share some of this raw interview tape with our listeners. So um, I'm going to, I want to play one of these clips that uh, from one of your interviews and um, I'll play a few through, through our conversation here, which is a treat. Um, But one of them is with Brian Fry that, that goes to this very point you're making here. Um, Can you, while I cue that up, can you say who he is and, and what he kind of podcasts about? Yeah, so Brian makes this pod- podcast called, and now you're going to uh, find whether my Latin pronunciation is okay, like uh, Ipse Dixit, is that how it's pronounced? And uh, it's, a, it's a legal studies podcast, and it's and it's brilliant. And this was actually, so I should say, with all of the podcasters I spoke to, I listened to two podcasts at least by everybody. Um, some of them were in languages I couldn't understand, so I just listened for, for tone and style and so on. And he was doing like really interesting stuff, so as well as having discussions with fellow scholars about their research, he also had... He also liked to just like mess with people. Like he just like put in fake adverts and like and like draw in like uh, commercials from like the nineteen forties or fifties that he collected on vinyl. And then he also had a prisoner making podcast series on his um, smuggled in mobile phone in prison. And like so, he was just like really pushing the boundaries of what scholarly podcasting might be or what scholarship might be. I'm going to try to play a clip here from your interview with Brian. Here we go. 
Okay, so I mean, like, so one, it's kind of almost like a running joke in the legal academy that when people give a paper presentation, you'll have some dude, it's always a dude in the audience, who says, um, well, I didn't read your paper, uh, but I have a question that's more of a comment, and let me tell you about my work, right? <laughs> right? I, I just got to cut in. That laugh is so infectious. I'm going to go back to it in a second. But okay, gotta say, should, it should be a ringtone. It really, it really is. Okay, we'll go back to it. Hold on. Here we go. <laughs> right, but I mean that's like that's like the model of the academic quote unquote conversation. And I really, you know, I mean, one of the things that I really wanted to do was not to be like that. So, you know, one of the big commitments I made with the podcast was like every interview I do, I read the whole paper or the whole book before I do the podcast and I think about it and I write down the questions that I think somebody who wants to learn about this person's ideas would want to know the answers to based on what I thought after reading the paper. And then when I do the interview, I just listen. Right. I mean, like, you know, I've got questions, but, you know, the questions aren't as important as listening to what the other person has to say and trying to understand what they think is is important. And I really see that as being the primary goal. But, you know, I mean, as scholars, I think one thing that, you know, unlike yourself, a lot of most scholars are not good at doing is listening to what other people have to say and actually paying attention to what they say. Again, pretty pretty uh, strong critique here, but I bet there might be some head nodding out in the audience for people who've gone to some of these academic conferences that you and, and Brian mentioned. Any other thoughts about this clip? In the spirit of listening. In the spirit of listening, and especially listening back, apart from his amazing laugh, I was thinking, it's actually, I mean, and I don't know whether this is something that... Uh, you'll play later from Brian as well but I do remember elsewhere in the interview and it reminded me of it just now when he was saying he said there's a couple of ways or at least a couple of ways of being a a professor one is to talk about how great you are all the time and say hey look at me I'm so brilliant another is to see who else's work you really like and say wow that works really great I'm going to use my platform as a tenured professor to really promote uh, younger scholars and that's what's really interesting there he talks about listening so like he has quite junior people sometimes on his on his podcast who he's really excited about their work and he says okay let me give you a platform let me let me put you out there and I think that's and I think that's really great I mean the you a lot of the times, I think the structures in academia promote a sort of hyper-individualized, competitive nature. But actually, you can be super generous, actually, um, if you want to be. And podcasting allows allows that as well. No, it's really interesting. Yeah, so there's a rebellion insurgency on that level, too, of being, you know, you don't have the ability to change how these scholarly societies you know, invite the people to give the paper that are the senior scholars, but everybody can make a podcast. And you can have whoever you want on. And you can have whoever you want on. And, and here's the thing, right? If you think about in terms of impact and 
these things that people talk about. I mean, I don't know how many people listen to your podcast, but I imagine it's more than would listen to somebody give a keynote at most conferences. So uh, it's also the case that you have got a lot of power in doing this podcast as well. So there's a little bit of responsibility there as well, right? Uh, okay, who, who are we going to put on? Are you going to replicate the existing hierarchies within academia and just have the rock stars on? Or are you going to you know, dig around a bit and find interesting people and, and, and mix that together. And I think that's a super interesting sort of insurgency thing that's going on. I remember um, Joseph Cohen, who I spoke with, who does the Annex podcast, which is a sociology podcast. He was telling me he prefers to interview younger people because younger people prepare more to come on his podcast. So when he's interviewing the big stars, they don't really prepare. They just come on, hey, I'll talk about anything, you know, or there's a um, astronomy um Astronomy or astrology? Astrology is the dodgy one. Astronomy is the real one, right? Astronomy podcast <laughs> called the Cosmic Savannah, and uh, they were telling me about uh, the, the two hosts there. They were telling me about how if you're going to do a, if you want to find out what's going on with the latest sort of big development in astronomy, don't speak to the project lead because they're mostly doing admin. You know, go speak to the postdoc. They're the person who's like doing all the crunching of data. They're the person who's really hands on with stuff. So it's also like you know trying to find different people to speak to different ways of of working out who is actually at the cutting or leading edge of you know scholarly knowledge no, that's really interesting i will share one um kind of trick in that vein or bias that we yeah. have is we don't have a lot of like um university presidents or top leaders of projects for that very reason is you know who knows what's really who's i feel like one of the magics of podcasting is that not quite worked outness of getting to people before they've, you know, done the book interview a hundred times and have it all down. But, but I like to be the first person that talks to the author or one of the first where um, we can sort of hear the person think through these really hard things. Like it, if it wasn't hard, you wouldn't have had to write a whole book about it. And so then, or, or leading a project, like somebody on the ground being like, well, you know, this didn't really work perfectly. You know, it's not, if everything worked perfectly, it's not a podcast in some ways because it it doesn't have that space for the the interesting bits in the middle that aren't quite resolved, but that a podcast can get to in a way that an article I write for EdSurge, say, kind of gets smoothed over. And I'm sure scholarly writing has that too, where in the process of editing, all that stuff gets thrown out to get the, here's what worked, here's what didn't work in a very formalized way. But this can be, you know, how how can you get to other things? exactly and isn't it a privilege to hear people speak uh, so hear people think whilst they're speaking <laughs> like you know it's great and it, and it's uh and what also is interesting is okay so you know i wrote a book on something but you're also an expert in this as well because you're a podcaster right and so we're having this conversation now and you'll be asking me things which pushes me to think about uh, the phenomena of scholarly podcasting that I hadn't thought about before. And that's how knowledge also gets pushed forward. And if I was close to this idea, which unfortunately sometimes, not always, but unfortunately sometimes in academia, people don't want to say, oh, you know what? I never thought of that. I've just written a book on the topic and I've never thought of that particular angle. And well, this is a very broad book. You know, it's not like it's not hyper focused in the sense like I didn't focus on, you know, just anthropology podcasts, which maybe would be which maybe would have given it a different you know, angle. But then and, it, and I think that's what's really interesting about the way also conversation can be a form of knowledge uh, creation in and of itself as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And 
there's another, you mentioned the word vulnerability, which I think you are quoting the next clip I'd like to play in a way, or, or, or maybe you came to it as well on your research. But I'm going to play this clip from Martin Spinelli, um, who you list as a podcast scholar. Can you, as I cue that up, could you say a little bit more about who Martin Spinelli is so people understand the context? So he is somewhere in the UK, I can't remember, but he's an American uh, podcaster uh, or, ra- or radio guy. And then he now he teaches um, in a UK university, which I can't remember the name of off the top of my head. But he also wrote together with the co-author Lance Dunn, this book uh, that I mentioned previously, um, Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution. Um, he likes to tell this story that he got a phone call when he was quite young from... Ira Glass from This American Life saying, I'm just starting this new show called This American Life. Would you like to come and join as a junior or whatever? And he said, nah, it doesn't really sound like it's going to be for me. My jaw is <laughs> dropping if people could see. <laughs> but yeah, so this is, I mean, he t- so yeah, that's the guy. But yeah, so, but now he, uh, now he teaches podcasting. He makes interesting podcasts and uh, yeah, he wrote a book on it. All right. This one, this clip is, I'm going to play, I think just part of it, but at least a minute or so. So let's just listen in. So vulnerability is really, really important in uh in podcasting and it's not surprising to me that other people have uh pointed to that and used that word um a lot of what i wrote in the intimacy chapter in podcasting the audio media revolution had to do with trust it had to do with a trust relationship that forms between listeners and podcast producers and one of the arguments in that chapter is that the circuit of trust begins in the other direction. The circuit of trust begins with the podcaster trusting the listener to approach the material that she or he is offering in a right way. Um, that uh, there is a kind of um, uh, respect um, that is asked by the podcaster of the listener to um, treat the material um, as if it's between two friends. And that vulnerability, that showing of yourself as fallible, as uncertain, as not authoritative, uh, that speaking in a way that is so at odds with contemporary political discourse, um, which is about unmerited confidence and braggadocio. Um, That's the the opposite register of podcasting. So this vulnerability that that other people are pointing to in and around podcasting is a a really important part of of that intimate relationship. Yes, you can't have an intimate relationship without some sense of vulnerability, uh, both on the part of the podcaster and on the part of the listener. You know, we were trained with, uh, we're trained to kind of uh, um, know where you're going before you take your first step and to construct an argument, have a hypothesis, test it, and then uh, kind of once you found your result, kind of organize all of your words to arrive at that destination. And um, uh, that's not the way podcasts seem to work. And I can understand why um, conventional, um, uh, more older school academics might be a little bit um, troubled by that. And, you know, that's for centuries, academics um, have been viewed as a kind of the font of definitive knowledge in a lot of ways. And podcasting is not that. Um, 
But the argument is, my argument is, um, is that academia doesn't need to be that either. And it can be a richer, more discursive, more dialogic, more speculative, more conversational experience than it has been throughout most of my professional life and uh, and throughout the past several centuries of of higher higher learning all right that was i let that play all the way through because i couldn't stop it i i was going to only play a part of it but <laughs> any reaction as you rehear that as i yeah listen to that again i'm thinking how that changes questions of who we consider to be our peers and what that does for questions of different forms of peer review so if you think about uh, if this trust is put out towards the listeners and you know the way that peer review traditionally works is you know you write something you submit it to a journal they find two three people who are the peers they send it to them you get your feedback and you know it's quite a it's quite a what well, it's completely text-based it's also quite a slow and sometimes um angry <laughs> process angry so in other Amazon. words people yeah. are contentious <laughs> yes exactly there's a lot of there's a lot of uh critical cruelty going on let's say anyway and um and uh which is which is you know which anyway but uh the the idea of putting out knowledge out there with something like a scholarly podcast and you get feedback from it in real time from people you get interactions with people you can also think about the ways in which um you can keep the conversation moving forward based on the comments on questions that you get if you're making a podcast which you know from week to week is exploring a particular topic and then it keeps getting pushed along so i'm thinking that's that's super interesting as well especially if you're working with a topic which is um contemporary and fast moving i can imagine that this is a this is a wonderful way of interacting with groups of peers more broadly conceived in pushing forward a particular piece of knowledge or idea or you know, a particular area or, or topic of research yeah and so it, it, it goes with what we've we've said even leading up to the clip of like how different these conversations are from the sort of like all uh perfectly presented you know worked on for years and years you know, output of like a book or a scholarly paper. This is the idea of this. These conversations are to really be uh, more vulnerable in the way of the. In other words, like the not not fully boiled soup, right? The 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 that raw production. Yeah, for some people they are like that. For some people they're putting out stuff which is much more polished and much more finished. Uh, they want to basically put out things in a more sort of audio documentary form. But for other people they're putting stuff out there which is they're working things out as they as they go along. And I think also there's political stakes there as well. There's there's a lot of people who don't necessarily trust scholars and what scholars are doing. Um, it has you know there's a lot of distrust in experts. And uh, and I think a lot of it, some of it is justified in the sense that when people try to question experts, sometimes people can be a bit like, oh, well, you don't understand it, or they reply in such convoluted language that it's difficult for people to penetrate the, the ideas. And it seems to me that the answer to this a attack, if you like, on 
expert knowledge and on scholarly knowledge is not to retreat. It's not to say, all right, you know, let's uh, let's close the walls of the and, let, and and let's just do our let's do our scholarship and 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 let the plebs go and uh, you know hate us. That seems to me to be the completely the wrong move not only arrogant but also just uh yeah politically really dangerous because actually you know what let's open up uh our knowledge production processes let's let people in let's explain that actually you know we didn't come to this idea like by pulling it out of the sky or because we had a particular opinion about something before we started doing the research but actually we worked it through over time uh by doing this by doing that we had missteps we had misturns we refought our hypotheses and i think that's really important people can and want to understand this oh it's so interesting well um i'm gonna take take a pause for a second i we're gonna come i think we'll get back to some of these big picture ideas of of how conversation changes with podcasts but i i wanted to switch gears a little bit to the teaching side of the house which a lot of a lot of our listeners are, you know, interested in how podcasting could be used in education at school or college or any level. And it's something that you dug into with some of the people you talked to as well. Um, and so I guess I wanted to just first off, invite you to sort of share, you know, what are some of the ways or a highlight or two that you learned about, about how podcasts get used in an educational setting and teaching setting? Yeah, so there's a bunch of ways, and I think it's really exciting. So some people they just switch out uh, a written assignment for an audio assignment and uh, ask the students to make a podcast, so or make, make podcast, audio, make a podcast, yeah, or make audio, and um, that does a that does a bunch of stuff. So firstly, it means it forces you, you know, to actually say the same thing in much less words because you know you know, like, like a, let's say a student essay of two, 3,000 words, you can't read that out on a podcast, you know, so you've got less words going on. So it pushes the students to really distill things. If it's a podcast that involves interviews, it gives them interview skills. It helps them build networks. Uh, it helps them plan for like learning how to like actually organize their time because it's often public or has the potential to be public or at least be heard amongst their classmates. They take it much more seriously. I think after a certain amount of time, many students learn how to sort of quickly write an essay the day before the deadline. You can't do that with a podcast if you've got to learn a bunch of new skills. Uh, and of course, then as you go along, people are starting to think about the material um, in a more, not necessarily more, but in, a, in often um, a deeper way because they're always thinking about the material they're learning in class and how they might be converting that into a podcast. So there's that going on. Uh, and actually in the back of the book, I put like some an example assignment, um, very broad one if people want to adapt it for, for their own classes. Um, other people lecture, um, do like sort of mini lectures as podcasts and give them to their students. Um, this is a really popular amongst um, non-native English speakers or non-native speakers in general because, you know, now, you know, higher education is extremely internationalized all over the world and very often people struggle with a professor's accent or, you know, certain terminology to have something recorded they can listen back to is is really great. Either sometimes professors are recording it and then just putting it online afterwards and sometimes and, and, and sometimes they're doing it as a as a pre-lecture so then people can explore it during the class. Other, other professors were um using their using it as a way of building almost their sort of not their reading list because it's listening list on topics that especially were, were fast moving so like michael labelle who's one um person interview for the podcast he works on in the world of sort of energy um which is su super fast moving you know like sort of and so like you know it's like if i need to speak to someone who's an expert in the field i can invite them onto a podcast i'm making and then i can share that with my students um and it shows first of all that 
you know, I'm an expert in the field. It also shows that, um, you know, it also allows the students to get really up-to-date um, information as well. So there's a bunch of different ways. And some people also just starting to put lots and lots of podcasts on their syllabi as well, which I think is really key um, in a different way. Exactly, if you've read an article by someone or a book by someone in a class and you get to hear that person talk about that book, it's a great way of reinforcing knowledge across through different medium. Yeah, and um, we we have definitely heard of some people using some of the narrative at search podcasts that we've done in various settings of discussing it after. And I think it's a, uh, we've, we've even done that here at the Ed Search newsroom where we all listen to, you know, a podcast and, and then come together to talk about it and think through the issues that it, that it dives into. So it's, uh, I hear you. I wanted to ask about, uh, I wanted to play another clip. There's, there's one by, it's actually, I noticed somebody here in my neck of the woods. I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota, and there's somebody called Mark um, Pedelty that, that you talked with, and he does something called the Public Lands Podcast. Can you say a little bit more about him while I cue this up? Certainly. So he um, start, he started to make this podcast himself originally, like he was making this podcast um, as a way just to provide content in the course that he was teaching about public lands um uh, and uh and then he decided to sort of gift it over if you like to students and now students do most of the production on the podcast as well so first he set it up he got it moving got it got it got a listenership and now the students co-make the podcast with him i think they actually make more of the podcasts than he does by this point well let me yeah let's let's hear him talk about it for a minute it's about i think this one's a, a couple minute clip here let's let's give it a whirl i teach a course called environmental communication and that i've also taught for 12 years and that used to be a traditional seminar. Uh, then I turned it into an undergraduate class that was fairly large. Um, and at a certain point, I realized that probably the, the next step in the evolution for that course was to get out of the classroom. And so I created, and the provost at the University of Minnesota, um, I was able to get a grant as part of this learning innovations program, which was really nice. It was a great opportunity to actually get support and sort of rationalization and legitimation for doing this. So I called it a digitally networked field course. And the idea is to get students out of the classroom into the field sites where they're going to state parks, et cetera. We're in the middle of a urban area, so it's pretty easy for them with tra public transportation to get to these state parks, et cetera, interpretive resources. And the thing that digitally networks that into a virtual classroom or like the learning platform like Canvas, but I realized that the, the podcast could do that. So I started in 2017, that's four years ago. And for, for the most part, it was a means of me to deliver information to them. It was an informal thing where I'd interview some people, um, and I'd go out to parks and say, and the next step for your assignment is this. And so it started kind of converging at that point. And frankly, the convergence never really was consummated uh, for years, um, especially because I teach the class usually about once a year as opposed to two semesters. So there was all that other time. So it was either dead space for the, the, the podcast or something I was doing. 
So last year I had a research sabbatical and I decided every week starting on Earth Day, and now I've done it every week since last Earth Day, I would do one of these and really start building it up and then kind of gift it over, if, it, if you will. I'd stay the executive producer, but my associate producer is now a student, and now all the content is being produced by students. So it really is a matter of me kind of now having done this and built it a little bit, getting out of the way and having students produce content. Yeah, there's so much there's so much in that. It seems like on one level, he's, you know, getting people out of a physical classroom with podcasts, right? Yeah, exactly. And But you know what I was thinking then, which is maybe not what you were thinking, but I was thinking, wasn't it good he had like a, a open-minded and supportive provost, right? I mean, uh, that's, you know, like, because, I mean, I imagine this is something you speak about in your podcast a bit, like the sort of support you need institutionally to try innovative things, right? Because this could have, it could have, it could have failed, right? It could have basically made this podcast, give it over to the students, and it could have collapsed because the students wouldn't have cared about it or somebody says, but they didn't, they really cared. But he needed basically also the institutional support to try this innovative teaching method. And it's really nice as well that he started off thinking, okay, I'll go out and I'll do stuff. And then he was like, okay, but then the students go out. Okay, but then why am I doing the podcast? So it really evolved as he was thinking and as he was learning year to year in the production of this podcast, which started off as professor teaching to students and ended up with students speaking to professors, which is pedagogically wonderful. That's great. And I want to, now I want to step back and kind of think about what it all means, right? Like maybe people listening are not even in education. They're not going to be teaching a class with a podcast, but does it, you know, one, and maybe, you know, they're not in the academic discourse. So um, what do you think all this knowledge being out there for anyone to listen to, even if they have no connection to universities or education at the moment, um, what do you think that matters? Yeah. it's really dangerous and we should stop people getting knowledge no i think it's a <laughs> no it's amazing isn't it amazing isn't it amazing that like let's be honest right let's say if somebody writes a book about i don't know the revolutions that took place in 1848 in europe and i say that just because i saw a book on that and i said that book was really interesting i can't remember who wrote it now a historian in the uk but i looked how fat the book was and the thing is like if i was not having to read all the time for my job, like that I might, I, I might still read that book, but you know, but I would definitely listen to him talking about it in a podcast. And I did, I found a podcast called, I can't remember what it's, some history podcast that I Googled it and I listened to that and it was super interesting. And I may now actually go and read the book because it sounded really interesting. But the point is, isn't it great that now all these super niche topics are available to everybody? And this was actually came up so often in these interviews that people were really surprised. Like people would be like, they'd get emails from people you know, different parts of the world, especially the very early podcasters, the ones who were doing it right from when podcasting became a thing or even before it was quite a thing called podcasting, that people would be like, you know, I'm a I'm a painter somewhere and I'm just bored of listening to whatever radio is on and some professor's putting on his, you know, biology, you know, lectures online and I just listen to it while I'm, you know, painting a house. And it's just like, and, they, and they'd be like, okay, wow, isn't that amazing? People actually are really hungry, thirsty for deep dives into complex topics so i think that's really liberating for knowledge and i think it's it, it, it can be a real boost i think for all of us who work in or at the side of um scholarly knowledge production because it means actually you know what often it can feel like you're talking to yourself or you're talking to a small group of people but actually isn't it great that people 
and I don't know why we should be surprised, but that people are super curious and that people actually wanted something more than what they were getting from mainstream uh, media. Like the sort of science you used to get on mainstream media used to be this very short thing, you know, and it was never really deep and complex um, because, you know, there was always a time pressure there. Now there's no time pressure, you know. You can speak for as long or short as you like, and it's really it's very hard now to find an audience in podcasting. It was much easier 10 years ago or 15 years ago because then there was so many people out there. Nowadays, loads of people have podcasts. It was a bit much more of a struggle, But although I wouldn't say that's necessarily a reason not to make a podcast but um because you know there's a reasons to make it beyond having a massive audience but uh, i think that there's actually just something genuinely um amazing about the fact is that scholars are actually <laughs> it sounds like really silly to say are actually producing things that people are interested in who aren't fellow scholars and uh, it should be a good reminder to everybody that scholarship can be public it can be pedagogical it can be um, explority and exciting and yet still be deeply rigorous and serious at the same time you don't have to dumb it down these are not dumbed down conversations exactly exactly and they're not right and sometimes i listen to some stuff and i like i mean i listen to a lot of podcasts in making this book and some of the stuff was at the edge of my understanding let's say but still nevertheless i i'm sure if i listened to a load more biology podcasts or a load more maths podcasts i would have got into the flow or virology podcasts but um you know just some stuff that just takes a bit of time to get used to but like if you're a relatively um open and you know, scholarly minded person, you can, not even our scholarly minded sounds too high and mighty, but if you're just like curious and you spend enough time with something, usually you can understand it. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's great. There was a Wired magazine article that ran um, just recently, just last month. And it was, it struck me. It's a, it's a argument that podcasts could unleash a new age of enlightenment um, as people kind of hear these intellectual conversations, even if they're outside of the academy. Um, I, I shared this with you in advance. I'm curious, and we'll, we'll put it in our listener you know, show notes and, and share it with our listeners. But I, I guess I was curious to hear your thoughts on this argument that um, there's kind of a, a, a new age of enlightenment thanks to all this scholarship and the, the way scholars talk to each other being um, made public. So, yeah, so... Like I was just saying, that's the optimistic side, and I think it's great, and I agree with it up to a point. The pessimist in me, and actually this is why I got slightly sidetracked before talking about peer review, is because together with a couple of Canadian scholars, um, Laurie Beckstead and Hannah McGregor, we just submitted a finished manuscript for a, a book called Podcast or Perish, Making Peer Review for the 21st Century, and basically talking about the importance of having podcasts peer-reviewed. And when I read the article that you shared with me, I was thinking, yeah, it's true, it is great, this Age of Enlightenment, hearing scholars discuss stuff, but we do also need to start rethinking the ways in which we evaluate different these different conversations that are going around not as sort of a as a gatekeeping way and not as sort of a um, a limiting way but so that people know let's go back to the word trust so maybe it's trust and it can be more dispersed trust and it can be contested which is fine and it's great that somehow some of the expertise is being challenged but at the same time without naming names we can all probably think of um 
famous professors with podcasts who abuse their position uh, to basically talk. I don't know. If I'm not. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear or not on your podcast, but <laughs> could talk, could talk nonsense and, uh, and, uh, and and unchallenged, right? Because they wouldn't be able to do that necessarily in a conference or in a or in a journal article or in a book because it would go through a review process, an editor, and this and that. So there is something greatly wonderful, liberating about the fact we can talk to everyone. But at the same time, I think we will start more and more wanting to know whether or not the thing that people are talking about is can be subjected to um, a process of a form of peer review by which i mean that people can defend that people can explain that people can further certain ideas that they're putting forward to make sure that people aren't just um yeah talking out of a certain orifice no it's i'm, I'm glad you brought that up because we're, we're certainly not you know, that's, you're right. It's a bit of a utopian take to say that there's this age of enlightenment. And at its best, that is kind of like we talked about breaking down some of these like gatekeeping barriers that have slowed the availability of ideas because of the peer review. But on the flip side, the danger then of just raw, anybody can make a podcast is that misinformation can spread if somebody is good at making a podcast and it gets out there. Exactly, exactly. And you could just be a really skilled orator or a really skilled interviewer and, um, you know, put something out there that becomes extremely popular and giving always also giving people the content they want to hear to reinforce the views they already have. And that's not scholarly, right? Scholarly, I think, should be challenging. It should be pushing things forward. It should be able to... Um, open itself up to rigorous and critical examination so um i think i am and i imagine that this is the way scholarly podcasting is going to start to move in the next few years that people are going to want to especially if and i hope to some degree doesn't become completely formalized within the academy but people start to put it down there as their scholarship people are going to want to sort of justify this as quote-unquote real scholarship and for that to be counted as such people are also going to want to then have the sort of um, yeah, to, to to subject it to the rigor of different forms of peer review. Isn't there a danger, though, that that would take all the things you've said that are the best thing about podcasting yes. out of it? Exactly, exactly. And that's the problem. And that's, and that's the tightrope I think we'll have to walk. But I think the question is this, is like, are we as people who produce knowledge, the people who best to do that? I would say yes. Or are we going to allow other people to do it? So I would say that like the reason why, you know, peer review scholarship in journal article format gets critiqued so much not by everybody but by a lot of people is because it's become this system out of control of the people who produce the knowledge right but i think there's still a diy nature to podcasting at the moment that's keeping it fresh that's keeping that's allowing the people who are doing it to make the rules so i guess it's up to the people who do it but i totally agree i mean for a lot and a lot of people would as well so a lot of people would say god no please this is not anything to do with my university this is nothing to do it's not going on my cv this is the fun thing i do at the end of the week you know even though it's like for me when I listen to it, it sounds like you know you know serious scholarship, but for them it's like nah, this is this is the thing I can do with no control. So it's a it's a it's a it's a I think it's a balance, and I think it's going to be interesting to see where it goes moving forward. I probably change my mind on it quite often. I do like the rebellious nature of podcasting. It's 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 great, right? This is why, and I, and I think also think it's similarly wonderful that um, 
that all the money that was poured into podcasting by you know venture capitalists and Spotify and so on seems to have been wasted money, right? The podcasting bubble sort of burst because I think the reason why you know people like ourselves can make podcasts is because you can do it sort of cheap. You know, you got to buy a decent and enough mic and a computer that can handle some sort of low level low level editing and have a decent internet connection, and then you can make a podcast, right? You don't need loads and loads of money. So all of this money that was thrown in. Um, hoping that these podcasts would be massive has sort of, you know, fizzled out now. So I think the sort of, let's say, the insurgent, rebellious, DIY nature of podcasting, I hope, in my optimistic mode, can, uh, can yeah, keep, uh, keep even scholarly podcasting genuine. I'm hearing, that's interesting, I'm hearing kind of a um, podcast, as scholars were here making podcasts before Spotify got all that, raised all this venture capital, and then that is falling away and you're still here yes <laughs> exactly exactly you didn't you didn't get bought up by spotify didn't offer you a few million to you know to turn your podcast into the next um i don't know obama and prince harry podcast no <laughs> uh well i want to play one more clip by someone who i was excited to see that you interviewed a, a bit of a celebrity in the podcasting world dan carlin who does the hardcore history podcast and Dan Carlin, I know. <laughs> I, Welcome to Hardcore History. <laughs> and if, if people don't know it, these are uh, th- often three-hour and just uh, kind of. I, I just I don't even know how to describe them. People who haven't listened to them, but they are an experience. And he is, you know, um, a very interesting character. I'm going to play this clip, and then let's talk about it. If you do the questioning correctly, it should lead you to thoughts. And because they're questions, I'm not giving you answers, but thoughts that that maybe you hadn't considered that whole avenue. Like, I always love the, because this was one of my moments where I, you know, the light bulb went on in my head as a kid. And I use the example, I overuse the example of that moment in the, in the film Planet of the Apes, where you see the Statue of Liberty sticking out of the sand and you go, oh my God, I never considered that my civilization might fall. And then all these dominoes start tumbling in your head and you see things differently. Well, those are things you can insert into the conversation as a non-expert in a non-expert way. Okay, so that one, I, I, I think it's okay that it's short. So I guess he he talks, he starts talking about, you know, kind of um, how the, the questions, the act of this questioning can kind of really lead, if I understand him correctly, lead the listener to have all these thoughts on their own. But it also references his kind of unique, he's not a, a traditional scholar, right? Yeah, so he's a, he's a talk radio guy who I think he has like a master's in history and he's always been a history buff. And then very early on, before podcasting really became a thing, he started to make history podcasts. Um, I think because he was told to do it by his mother-in-law, if I remember well from the interview, she was like, what, you're really into history. You don't really enjoy your job except for that bit where you get to freely talk about stuff. So why not try Why not try doing this? And he did and he became massively popular. And the way he has this, and I think is a very healthy um attitude to have is he keeps saying oh well i'm not really a historian you know although all he does is read history books and then make podcasts about them so you know he's a i would say he's a you know he's a public historian but and uh and then he 
he just talks freely about these topics after doing all this research. So it's not scripted. There's a broad plan, but he just talks. And he wanted to inject some sort of um, historiography into the process. So that's why he started to ask all these questions. So how to how to show these opposing points of view, that the debates amongst different historians, he would start to sort of insert them almost as like audio footnotes along the way. So he would ask something, what about this? What about that? From different historians. But then he would also do something which I guess is the freedom of the medium, which is to ask these sort of, you know, what if questions, which you wouldn't usually see in history, right? And uh, in, in, in like, you know, scholarly history uh, publications, which I think is also really nice because it's, it's very evocative. And um, so, yeah, his podcasts are epic, you know, like, uh, and that, I think three hours is like a short one. <laughs> no, you're right. I <laughs> might be underselling like, it. Mo- multiple multiple uh multiple three-hour podcasts on a certain topic you know and um but he's very engaging because he knows how to speak really well probably because of his training um and also he's super passionate so it's like the voice you can hear his enthusiasm about a topic as well and he was telling me basically for him he understands it as a performance so i think this is also interesting in terms of how we think about doing podcasts you know because um you know maybe maybe if we're a scholar we make a podcast we're not trained in how to speak um but also usually we're not trained in how to write right but we work on our writing to make ourselves better writers so i think if you're making a podcast it's also slightly incumbent on yourself to think through how to present certain ideas in certain ways to become a better interviewer but also to become a better narrator as well um because he just sits down and records himself and then he you know someone else i imagine now edits it all together for him afterwards <laughs> and uh, but for him is very much if he's got the energy if he's got the performance to to put those ideas out there and i i wanted to talk about him for a minute because he is that it gets at this point we were just talking about of who who gets to be the one sharing with the public the latest scholarship because he he references historians and reads so many books and talks about those books but as you said he talks about how he's not a scholarly person in history he's not a phd in the history world and so it 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 is i wonder how that tension is right with you know i'm i'm imagining there are professors of history who are like why does dan carlin get to be the guy who's the <laughs> the person that <laughs> sure. million like he has a huge huge audience he you know um i don't know how many it is but it's more than most of of us in podcasting and so why him and it does get back to this like who gets to be the voice of uh of the way a scholarly field is going to be these voices yeah I, I, so i think in some way it's healthy um, I think sometimes it's great when you see um, a couple of Romanian podcasts I interviewed who make this Romanian language podcast mostly called Contrazans, and they were undergraduates when they started to make this Romanian language sociology podcast, and uh, it was really popular. And then, luckily for them, they had supportive professors who used to introduce them to everyone. Hey, these are the these are the the sociology podcasts. Probably just they were happy that people were interested in sociology, right? Like they were like, yeah, great, and and that's the positive example, right? And then the the negative one is where people can be very sniffy, like, well, that guy, this 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 this, and so on. I always think. And you can see this in, in many different places as well. The sort of the digitalization of all forms of media has led to the emergence of different types of producers, content makers, whatever. They didn't, they weren't, wouldn't previously have um, made it, shall we say, right? Because you know maybe somebody wouldn't have had a voice for the BBC or for NPR, um, but they do have a voice for podcasting. Because you know what? it turns out, actually, people are quite happy to listen to people with all sorts of weird and wonderful voices, um, and 
maybe you know somebody just isn't a particularly great writer and if you're not a particularly great writer then you're never going to be a particularly successful scholar because you actually have to write all the time you have to write to pass your exams to do your ma your phd whatever write your books and so on that is how everything is is measured but maybe you're a really great speaker maybe you're a really great conversationalist and maybe that's how you do knowledge production so even though that's not currently recognized um, by the academy as legitimate scholarship or making you a legitimate person nevertheless i think that's pretty exciting in thinking through different ways in which um, scholarship can be recognized and acknowledged yeah I, I, and before we close i just i mean in a way like i love that our conversation has you know gone on these optimistic and the excitement of an insurgency but with any insurgency there are plenty of people who are like whoa that's not okay. There are downsides to throwing out the old and putting in something new. And that's, it seems like still where we are with this, you know, um, emerging podcast area. Yeah, totally. And and I think that's, that's good. I think any, I mean, it's talked about a lot, like disruption in media studies and like, and how the digital disrupts stuff. Sure. But lots of things, lots of technology is disruptive, right? All the time, the printing press was disruptive and, and, you know, digital media audio is disruptive and uh, the question is always i think it's i always like to think about it in a sort of political way is that what what do we do with it and what opportunities are there and i think in my optimistic mood then i'm like okay if we can really seize back the the public sphere from <laughs> and to, from the sort of dumbing down of mainstream media but also from the opinions that get presented as hard facts on the other side this could be a great role for scholars to be honest like moving forward and be like okay you know what like this is really important stuff that we do let's seize this opportunity and let's also see it as a pedagogical thing at the same time not just for our students who might be in or not our classes but also more broadly the public as well making scholarship a bit more pedagogical making scholarship a bit more have a bit more of a political purpose as well and say okay we should be out there getting this knowledge out there because it's needed right because there's been a dumbing down or like sort of anti-expert discourse so i would say yeah there's plenty of space to be uh, pessimistic plenty of opportunity to be optimistic but with all of these things it's a challenge that i hope people can and do rise to well i'll leave it at that thank you so much for talking through this with us absolute pleasure jeff this has been the ed search podcast every week we look at the future of learning a hat tip this week to bonnie stahoviak I first learned of Ian Cook's book on her podcast. That podcast is Teaching in Higher Ed. I think she and I had very different conversations about it with Ian. So if you want to hear more, I recommend you check out her interview as well. You can find a link to that and a lot of other things we talked about in this episode if you subscribe to our EdSurge podcast newsletter. Just sign up at edsurge.com, click on the word newsletter, and we hope you'll check out our other newsletters as well with all our reporting, research, and analysis on how education is changing. This week's episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing this episode by Rebecca Koenig and music by Rowan Jane. We'll have more on the future of learning next week. Thank you for listening.